Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for this Lord's Day, that we can uh, just reflect, uh, rejoice, and respond in worship to a holy God. We're thankful that you have not consumed us because of our iniquities, and, and we know that it's only because of Christ uh, that we have not been consumed. And so even as we study the work of Christ in His church, I pray that we would most be pointed to Christ. That these men, these women are mere men and women who have been saved by the blood of Christ. And, and so I pray that we would rejoice in the work that the Lord Jesus is doing, not only in America, but around the, around the world. And uh, we thank you for our country and the great heritage that we have and, and the, the providential workings, the remarkable providences that have so uh, permeated our history. I pray that we would not grow complacent in our generation, that we would learn from the past, uh, that we would listen to the past as we prepare for the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. You're reading from the ESV. There's a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, Son of Zuf and an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord 
remembered her. Martha Davies looked down at the body of her lifeless 37-year-old son. It's the only words that was spoken around his uh, body after he died, and it was by his mother. And she said, There is the son of my prayers and my hopes, my only son, my only earthly supporter, but there is the will of God, and I am satisfied. As news of his death began to spread, a, a gloom settled over the colonies. Never, it was said, was a man more lamented in America than Samuel Davies. Samuel Finley, who followed Davies as the president at Princeton, or College of New Jersey at that time, lamented in the funeral sermon that he preached for, for Davies, his persuasive voice you will hear no more. He is removed far from mortals, has taken his aerial flight, and left us to lament that a great man has fallen in Israel. He lived much in a little time. He finished his course. He shone like a light set in a high place that burns and expires. For years it was said that Samuel Davies lived on the borders of eternity. He himself said just a couple of months earlier as he was preaching to the students a New Year's message entitled, This Year Thou Shalt Die, said, Therefore conclude, everyone for himself, it is of little importance to me whether I die this year or not. But the only important point is that I may make a good use of my future time, whether it be longer or shorter. This, my brethren, is the only way to secure a happy new year, a year of time that will lead the way to a happy eternity. Samuel Davies was born in 1723 in what is now Newcastle County, Delaware. Back then it was in Pennsylvania, uh, but today it is in Delaware. His parents came over from Wales, and again, as we look at the history of America, many have come from religious persecution. Uh, many who, who sought to live here fled Europe because they were being persecuted, and it was really no different from his parents. Now, if we go back to St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572, we know that many were killed for their faith, Protestants. And then in 1662, on, Saint, on, the, on the same day that St. Bartholomew's Day happened, the Great Ejection happened. Now, what was the Great Ejection? What was the Great Ejection in, in England? 1662. This one not Ministers were kicked out. That's correct. So up to 2,000 non-conforming ministers were kicked out of England. The light, the, the preaching, God's word was extinguished. And it, they never recovered. England never fully recovered from that. Then, in fact, uh, Ian Murray said that was when true Christianity was separated from a form of Christianity. Religious people often try to get rid of true religion. Do you hear that? Religious people often try to get rid of true religion. They remove the messengers and the ministers and people then will seek, as they did here, freedom somewhere else. And that's what happened. America becomes this place where people are seeking freedom. And, and so Samuel's parents, David Davies and Martha Thomas, uh, both come over from Wales. And, and Martha grows, she's a, she's a child as she, when she comes over. And her parents are from a Baptist congregation. And so they come over and they join up with a Baptist church in Philadelphia. Now, in 1717, she marries David 
Davies. Can't believe they couldn't come up with another name besides David Davies. But they, they, jo- they merge with this church, and, and Samuel is born in 1723. And even Samuel will say this. He'll say, I am a son of prayer, like my namesake Samuel the prophet. And my mother called me Samuel because she said, I have asked him of the Lord. This early dedication to God has always been a strong inducement to me to devote myself to him by my own personal act. And the most important blessings of my life I have looked upon as the immediate answers to the prayers of a pious mother. But alas, what degenerate plant am I? How unworthy of such a parent and such a birth. His parents dedicated him uh, as, as a young man. Uh, and I don't think we want to, you know, if we were to look in our modern time, don't discredit, don't discount baby dedications and parent dedications. Parents who want to actively and, and in front of the congregation show that they want to raise their children to the honor and glory of the Lord. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. And we ought to, as a church, celebrate those things. And, and that happened often. Well, both of his parents seem to be very pious, but in 1732, the, the church in Wales had an, um, an unusual viewpoint on something that they held very strongly, and that is that you had to lay hands during uh, the Lord's Supper. Hands had to be laid on people as part of the sacrament, and anybody that didn't do that was not doing it rightly. Well, the Baptist Church in Pennsylvania did not do that, nor were they going to uh, comply here. And like most Baptists, uh, they had a split. And so, I mean, everybody has splits. But, uh, but so she's bothered by this. Martha, Martha Davies now is bothered by this. And so she begins to consult a Presbyterian minister. And in doing this, she gets disciplined out of the Baptist church. And there's even a record. I'm not going to read all the reasons why they kicked her out of the church, but but they, there's a whole thing uh, that's called the Rebellion of Martha Davies against the church. It's still in the church records today. And so at the, about the age of eight, Samuel grows up in now a Presbyterian church. So he will, but he'll always be a friend of dissenters. That is all those who dissented from the Church of England. And so he doesn't really, he wants to be, he's very careful. He has a Catholic spirit. Now, when I say Catholic spirit, what do I mean so I don't confuse anybody? What does it mean to have a, should we have a Catholic spirit here? Yes, we should. So what does Catholic mean? Universal, it means to have, that we can work together, that we love other people, that, that there is a desire for unity amongst all of God's people, right? And so that's the desire among, among true believers uh, and, true, and people that hold true to the gospel. But he certainly did, and that was important. He was always charitable, of those who believe the gospel but differed on non-essentials. Well, next we have his education and conversion. We had his early years. Now we move to his education and conversion. We're going to move quickly here. Last week I talked about one-eyed William Robinson, and he was educated for a while under him. He now had moved away from his parents, as was common back then, to receive an English education. He begins praying every night because now, and if you've ever gone back and read the New England Primer, you will see the importance that they put on death and on standing before God. That little book that they used to give children, really young children, with great illustrations of, you know, the Grim Reaper and, and all these things. And, and children grew up with this weight that they, they could die. And the reality was they could die at any moment in that era. 
And so death was always pressed on them and on their conscience. In fact, one of three children in his time died by the age of 10. So that's a pretty, pretty big uh, statistic. So in the New England Primer, we have this little, this little uh, poem that we all know. Uh, but it's, Now I lay me down to sleep. I what? I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I awake. Very good. Amen. And that's right. We say that as a little cute prayer today. That was a very real prayer in his day uh, because they didn't know if they'd wake up. Every night when you went to bed, you did not know if you were going to wake up. And so when you have true preaching coming down, being around godly men, it begins to affect you. If I don't wake up and I'm not right with God, I am going to go to hell. Why? Because hell was preached back then consistently. We've lost that in our day and age. We don't hear about hell enough. Jesus spoke more on hell than he did heaven. That's, let me just say that again. Jesus spoke more on hell than he did heaven. When the infidels of this day went to their death, guess what? They didn't receive Christ, but they knew hell was coming. And they, were upset, and they, were, they went to their death. Thomas Paine, Voltaire had miserable deaths. You know why? Because Christianity was permeating the culture at that time. And though they hated it, they couldn't do away with it in their minds. And we need to recapture this in many ways. But he begins seeking relief of his sins, and Samuel Finley writes of this concerning Davies. Uh, he says, While thus evidenced, he clearly saw the absolute necessity and certain reality of the gospel plan of salvation, and what abundant and suitable provisions it makes for all the wants of a sinner. No other solid ground of hope or unfailing source of comfort could, be, could he find besides the merits and righteousness of him whom God set forth to be a propitiation for sin through faith in his blood. On this righteousness, he was enabled confidently to depend. By this blood, his conscience was purged from guilt, and believing, he rejoiced with joy unspeakable and full of glory. At 12 years old, Davies was feeling that full weight of his sin. And uh, we need to, with our children, again, impress on them the full weight of their sin, that they're born dead in sin, that there is no hope apart from Christ. Church children are just as depraved as non-church children. And sometimes we do not teach total depravity, and it leads to self-righteousness in church children. When in reality, it's you're born dead in sin just like anybody else is born dead in sin, right? So Samuel understands this, and he puts his faith in Christ. And... and uh, we do need to remember that all are in this position. They are, all are groping in the darkness, even our children in our own church here at Grace Community Church. Well, one man uh, trained at the Log College, his name was Samuel Blair, and he will end up training other men, as I mentioned last week, at that place called Fags Manor. Now, the man Samuel uh, Blair, uh, as a preacher, it was said he was very eminent. There was a solemnity in his very appearance which struck his hearers with awe before he opened his mouth. And his manner of preaching, while it was truly evangelical and instructive, was exceedingly impressive. He spoke as in the view of eternity, as in the immediate presence of God. Preachers, again, it's important in our day and age that we do not come across as if we're just passing along facts. In fact, what we're going to find is just to believe in orthodox, the orthodox Christian truths leads to all sorts of bad things. You are not a Christian if you just believe orthodox Christianity, the facts of it. There will be lots of Calvinists in hell. There will be lots of Baptists and Presbyterians in hell. 
Why? Because they were never converted. They were never converted. And this was a problem back then. And that's why these preachers that came in began to preach a certain way, preaching at the heart with the weight of Scripture. Now, I love this next, this next quote because it says, Concerning the building, Samuel Blair built a log cabin, much like we talked about last week, the log college, uh, by the tenants. He built one similar. It was about 20 by 30. And it was built on his farm. And it was there that he began to train young men. But it said, I love this. It says, um, uh, well, it says, it was a simple log structure, completely unadorned inside and out. But the glory would soon be the presence of Christ within. Isn't that a great, a great description? Very unimpressive building. But the glory of Christ was there. The, the training, the preaching, the men were godly. And the glory of Christ was there. Now, Fag's Manor itself, uh, if we looked at the whole community, Samuel Blair said was indifferent to heart religion, careless about public ordinances, and profane the Lord's Day. He lamented that public occasions such as weddings resulted in a vain and frothy lightness and the deportment of many professors. In some places, very extravagant follies, such as horse running, fiddling, and dancing. And, and some other things that he mentioned. And the result was, in Blair's opinion, that religion lay dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. And the reason why he said that, and as we'll see throughout American church history, the way we use our time is indicative of what we think about eternity. Let me say that again. The way we use our time is an indicative of how important we think eternity is. If we are out entertaining ourselves all the time, we are just, every night and every day, entertainment is, uh, is controlling our lives. What are we living for? What are we living for? What, what's it say we're living for? For them, they would say, it is, it's showing that you're living for this world. And as we'll see, Samuel Davies kind of will say this in just a minute. So, uh, the mass of the people, Blair said, were satisfied with the rind without ever tasting the rich meat of the gospel ordinances. So frothiness or formalism, that's what he was dealing with. A lightness, people just complete with their eyes on this world, enjoying all the entertainments of this world, no care about eternity, going to church, going through all the motions. Or you had formalists who were all about doing the structure of the church, but there was no life in what they were doing. There was no experiential walk with Christ. We can fall in either ditch. So we talked about regeneration last week. And I just want to mention that there are what we call the Ordo Salutis, and that is the order of salvation. And, and be careful, don't think that we have to know all these steps when we come to Christ. All we have to know is that Jesus died for our sins, and we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in the secret counsels of eternity and how the Lord works, this is how we would hold this happens. This is the order, if you want to put it that way. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but... Predestination, God predestines those who will be saved. He elects those who will be saved. He calls that effectual calling, right? That is, He makes His calling effectual. Then we are regenerated. And this is going to separate us from every other Baptist church in Maryville, just about, and charismatic churches, and pretty much any Arminian church. That is, regeneration happens next. That is, that our hearts, we are born again. When Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Let me ask somebody in here. This is a really hard question. Who in here planned and was part 
of the planning of their own birth. Somebody just none of us. Very good, man. You're very good. No, of course not. We, none of us were, nor were any of us responsible for our spiritual birth. And Jesus has made that. We said all throughout Scripture, we're dead in our sins. There is no life in the gospel uh, apart from the Spirit opening our heart, like He did Lydia, Lydia in the book of Acts, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we what? We voluntarily believe and repent, and we see that Christ is the only one who can save us from our sins, and so on. Then there is faith, repentance. Then we are justified before God. This happens at conversion, right? We are made right. We are treated as we have never sinned. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're adopted. Sanctification begins at justification, then continues throughout our life. Uh, there's perseverance till the end. We can't lose our salvation. There's perseverance of the Savior, and there's our perseverance working with the Holy Spirit. And then one day we are glorified, all right? The important part here is regeneration. If we have people in this room right now that are not regenerated, you are not a believer. You might be teaching Sunday school. You might be going to church. You might love John MacArthur. You might love Reformed theology. You might, you might love just doing good things at the church, helping out. If your heart has not been regenerated, you are not a believer. That's the Spirit's work in the heart of man. And what happens is, is when a culture... Not just a, the culture of Virginia or Southern culture or any church culture, including Grace Community Church, 15, 20 years down the road could be in exactly the same place. We're going through all of the... Or, we're having SI. Let's, if, we could, if we could have a crystal ball and... Not a crystal ball, but if we could have like... A, we could look ahead and look ahead into the future. And there we are. We're all here at Grace Community Church. We're sitting in Sunday school. We could be sitting here with dry orthodoxy and formalism, and that doesn't bring glory to God at all. God isn't pleased when we're just Calvinist. God isn't pleased when we're just, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. The demons believe these things. They even tremble at them, and they are not changed. So we need to be careful that we don't fall into a formalism, that you're not just here because we've gone to Sunday school our whole life. No, we're here because we're learning about the truths of Christianity. We're preparing ourselves for eternity, all right? So, just need to be aware of that. And what was, we talked last week about the new lights, old lights. Old light preachers, the new lights we're saying, are not regenerated. They're blind leading the blind. Gilbert Tennant preaches the most probably controversial sermon at the time called The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. And he says, is a blind man fit to be a guide in a very dangerous place? Let me ask you something. Would you want a blind guy leading you down a mountain cliff? Probably not, if you're, especially if you're blind. Is a dead man fit to bring others to life? A madman fit to give counsel in a matter of life and death? Is a possessed man fit to cast out devils? And on and on and on he goes. He calls these preachers of the day leprous men and, and sick and, and everything he could think of. Why does this matter? Because as we start moving towards the revolution, ministers have a high place in society, and some of the unregenerated ministers are going to have a very big impact into the community of that day. So this is beginning now, and, and they're being called out. Under this preaching, by the way, people lose hope in anything and everything. They lose hope in their decision. Maybe today you're putting your hope in a decision that you made 30 years ago. I hope not. But that is not where your confidence lies. And when this preaching goes forth, as we're going to see from Samuel Davies and, and these great awakening preachers, every, people lose hope in everything they did. 
everything they did. In fact, some of the people actually thought the earth was going to swallow them up at that very minute when Samuel Blair was preaching, and they were going to drop into hell. We heard this with Jonathan Edwards, where they're hanging on to the pillars of the church. When the Spirit, through the preaching of God's Word, does that extraordinary work, when the power of preaching begins to get impressed on people's minds, when eternity is in view and not what we're going to have for lunch, what happens? All of a sudden, you start thinking different. All of a sudden, your priorities change. And all of a sudden, life itself changes. And now your greatest concern is not uh, enchiladas or, or fajitas like me. Uh, or it's probably, no, I'm gonna, am I going to burn if I fall into hell tomorrow? Why do I not love Christ? All right? So that's what this preaching did. Now, Samuel Davies himself said, in that day it will be found that the main difference between true Christians and the various class of sinners is this. God, Christ, holiness, and the concerns of eternity are habitually uppermost in the hearts of the former. But to the latter, they are generally things by and by, and the world engrosses the vigor of their souls and is the principal concern of their lives. You want to know who's going to go to heaven and who's not? Those who make God, Christ, holiness, eternity priority, and those who come to church and make this world their priority are nominal Christians who will not see, stand before the Lord. Now, at times we might be nominal Christians, but if our hearts are changed, we are what? We are repenting. We are, we are re-evaluating. We are being changed by the preaching. That's why Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembly. Why? Because the day is approaching, that day that he's talking about. And if we stop being around the body of Christ, we stop being under good preaching, it may prove out that we were never believers in the first place. This is a means to keep us walking with the Lord. All right? Get that? Very important because nominal Christians dot the church's landscape today. The majority of professors are probably nominal believers. I don't think that's the case here, but in churches where the gospel is not preached, that is the case. Very serious. Well, Davies, as he's trained, he's not able to financially complete his training. We talked about this last week. I'm not going to go into it more. Uh, but William Robinson tells Hanover, as he's preaching there, there's a student that's bright that I want to, the money you want to give me for coming, I want to give to this man, Samuel Davies. Well, Davies does complete his training. And it's at this time at the end that he begins to develop symptoms of tuberculosis, something that he will wrestle with the rest of his life. He will live on the border of eternity the rest of his life in more ways than one. Uh, and so he is sick. In fact, when he goes to Virginia, he thinks he's going for a short time to only prepare the ministry for others to come after him. He receives his license from the Newcastle Presbytery, and he zealously begins to preach the truth in Delaware, Pennsylvania, Maryland. So he finishes at, uh, at the log or at Fags Manor there. On September 46, October 23rd, he marries Sarah Kirkpatrick. But within that first year, she uh, dies in childbirth. And so he is grieved. He's heartbroken for about a year, suffers depression. Uh, if you read Melancholy in these days, that was depression, uh, extreme depression, because he had just left to go to Hanover to begin ministering, and he had to come back quickly uh, after about a year because she was, he, he was coming back at the thought that he was going to have his first child. And when he came back, she died in childbirth. Um, so next we have his ministry in Hanover. His ministry in Hanover. Just, just gives you a picture. He 
of where Newcastle is up in Delaware down to Hanover County in Virginia. All right, that's where Hanover County is. Not far from Richmond, if you guys have been to Richmond. Anybody been to Richmond, Virginia? Great. Got a great barbecue place there. If you ever want a good place to eat, let me know. Uh, huh? Yeah, there's Monticello. That's right. Monticello's there. So we're going to see that uh, Monticello and, and the man we talk about next week was not... Uh, Jefferson and the man we'll talk about next week were not on the same page on a lot of things. His ministry in Hanover, he was a drain as an evangelist, and he began to go to the vacant congregations in Hanover County in Feb on February 19th, 1747. What's the date today? February 19th. February 19th. There we go. All right, February 19th, he heads, he heads to Hanover County. William Foote, who wrote Sketches of Virginia. Hey, that's not what I wanted. Aha, uh -huh, tricked you. Uh, says that his prudence and piety were of that order called for in a difficult post in the Lord's vineyard. All these things designated him as the proper person to send to the interesting yet perplexing field of Hanover County, Virginia. Well, he got there, and on the very same day, he went to see Governor Gooch to try to get a petition to be able to preach to these congregations. And remember last week, what kind of started feeding the people's thirst for good preaching and uh, to, be, to leave the Anglican Church or the Episcopalian Church. What was one of those means that the Lord used? What's that? What was, what was feeding some of the people's desire to have good preaching? Somebody started something, and it, it started, they started reading things. Hint. Ah, reading room. Very good. They started reading sermons, right, of George Whitfield, of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, of all these different things, and it began to create in them a thirst for truth, not what they were hearing from the Anglican church. Well, the petition was granted that day, and, and, um, and in 1748 then, three more meeting houses he petitioned for. So he has, eventually had seven meeting houses that he could preach in. He had a 60-mile radius that he would preach, so you didn't get to preach in the same church every Sunday, uh, especially for dissenters. In fact, you'll, you'll read that some of these guys that claim to be Christians didn't even go to church. And part of the problem was is that if you had a plantation and you lived way out in the middle of nowhere, you couldn't go to church every week. And so don't just discredit somebody's conversion if they didn't go to church at all times because they couldn't go to church at all times. It was more did they have a conversion experience. Um, so he's in Hanover. Let me just read you a couple things here. There were 150 men who signed a petition for Davies to, to be their pastor. And he does. He, he comes, and, and in that county, there was a building. He said it was a plain, unpretended, unpretending wooden building capable of obtaining, containing about 500 people. And, and so Davies begins to preach. And... He begins to preach stuff like this because what do we say about Hanover County? It was lukewarm, right? It was men and women who claimed to be Christians, but they didn't really have a conversion experience or at best they were living for this world. So he'd come in and he'd say things like, how common, how fashionable is this lukewarm religion? This is the prevailing epidemical sin of our age and country. We have thousands of Christians, but alas, they are of the Laodicean stamp. They are neither cold nor hot. But it is our first concern to know how it is with ourselves. Therefore, let this inquiry go around this congregation. Are you not such lukewarm Christians? Is there any fire in life in your devotions? Or are not all your active powers engrossed by other 
pursuits. Again, let me just challenge you in here. If this was Samuel Davies and he came into this congregation and he said this very thing, how many in here are engrossed in other pursuits? That is, they are primarily dominating your time. That is, that you have so structured your life that you don't know how to escape all the things that you have of this world. What he would say is, is that's lukewarmness. Your, your heart is set here. And until your heart is set on eternity, things are not going to change. See, all this preaching preached for eternity. Not that they couldn't, I mean, he worked on a farm. Not that you give up what you have in this world. Simply that you are not driven by the things of this world. They don't dominate your life. Well, as you can imagine, he began to have opposition. He was mocked. Why? Because people, people started coming to his church. They started leaving the Anglican church, and the, the uh, clergy there were upset. Um, and so back, there was some back and forth, uh, and in time, uh, again, people began, be, there began to be a revival and awakening in Virginia, so much so that Jonathan Edwards hears about it. And remember, they don't have Facebook back then, and so it takes time. Uh, it really did. Nobody knew what was going on in other parts of the, the, the colonies. But he says, I heard lately a credible account of a remarkable work of conviction and conversion among whites and Negroes at Hanover, Virginia, under the ministry of Mr. Davies, who has lately settled there and has the character of a very ingenuous and pious young man. Well, what exactly was taking place? So Davies is preaching, but I just want to I just want to show you some things here. So we had the chance to go up here a few weeks ago, Rachel and I, and Rachel would sit in the car, and I would get out, look at these, and take these pictures. So uh, she was gracious enough to come with me. It was like negative 20, but, you know, what do you, what do, you do? So um, just stay in the car. That's right. And read. Um, we actually were able to meet up with a historian who, who is a Davies historian. So he took us around and showed us some things that I would not have known. So, so Davy, the glebe that he lived on, does anybody know what a glebe is? G-L-E-B-E. What's that? <laughs> Very good. That's, that's what it is. The, which one? This one, this one, or that one? I know. <laughs> so a glebe was basically in Virginia, the Anglicans, if a, when they would call a minister, they had to provide him with land to live on so that uh, he, could, he could live on that land. And that was called a glebe. It was a, it was a residence or land that he could farm uh, so that he could also provide for himself. Well, the dissenters really didn't get that option because this was only an Anglican uh, commonwealth. And so, uh, but when Davies came, be one of the first dissenting ministers, uh, they, there were those that provided him with a glebe. And so 300 acres he had um, over there. It's right at the corner of a main road there in Hanover County. I think it's Mechanics, Mechanicsville now is what it is. Uh, and, and then his house is actually, the foundation of his house is actually under this house here. So, actually, his original house, and why that's important is, is because we have the original slave quarters right here. So, the slaves that he would preach to, and he, was, he loved the slaves, and he was one of the first to really value and start preaching to slaves. They loved Samuel Davies, and they would leave here. There's another house right here where people live. They would leave here, cross the creek, go over to his house here, which is not far away, and we know it's also here because there's a big sycamore trees right here, and we, we knew that he lived under the sycamore, uh, a sycamore several sycamore trees. Um, but anyways, the slaves were being impacted by his preaching, and they would, he, in fact, Davy says this, 
The numbers of those who attend my ministry at particular times is uncertain, but generally about 300 who give a stated attendance. And never have I been so struck with the appearance of an assembly as when I have glanced my eye to that part of the meeting house where they usually sit, adorned, for so it has appeared to me with so many black countenances, eagerly attentive to every word they hear, and frequently bathed in tears. A considerable number have been baptized after a proper time for instruction, having given credible evidence not only of their acquaintance and with the important doctrines of the Christian religion, but also a deep sense of them upon their minds, attested by a life of strict piety and holiness. When the Spirit of God works in white people, in black people, in Chinese, in African, whoever He works in, there's the same fruit that comes no matter who you are. The same Spirit does the same fruit. He says, and here, here's what happened. On Saturday nights, he would have these slaves over. Again, they would, they would leave their dwelling right here, and they would go over to his house on Saturday, and he'd have dinner with them, and they would hang out in the kitchen. And he said he finally would go to bed because they wouldn't, they wouldn't go home. And so he, they would start singing. And in, in his kitchen comes this song. This was written in his kitchen by the slaves. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart, in my heart. In my heart, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. Lord, I want to be more loving in my heart. Lord, I want to be more holy in my heart. Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart, in my heart. And so how many of you heard that song? It survived down to this day, right? And they would sing it at Davy's church, actually, uh, when he was preaching. So we have this, this ministry that goes on. In fact, l- look at this. Uh, when a visitor from Richmond... Uh, Uh, came in and saw what was happening. He says, When I go amongst Mr. Davies' people, religion seems to flourish. It is like the suburbs of heaven. It is very agreeable to see the gentlemen at their morning and evening prayers with their slaves devoutly joining with them. And so while we have decades to work on the issue of slavery that's coming, you have to to realize that things don't all change all at once. What we do see is unity around the Word of God. And both of them love God's Word. And now they start treating each other different. And that's what true Christianity does. And so uh, his preaching changed the rich, changed the poor, changed the slaves, changed the free. That's what true biblical preaching does. All men are drawn, all of God's elect are drawn to biblical preaching. What about his personal character? Keep moving here. Uh, I don't think. Let me just mention some things about Davies. He was genteel, it said, not ceremonious. He was grave, yet pleasant. By the way, we need more grave, solemn pastors in our day and age, not, not miserable men, not guys that can't ever have any fun. But there is a disposition to a man. Uh, there's a disposition to any Christian that's walking closely with the Lord. And some of the antics that we see on pulp, in pulpits and on the stage in churches indicate that we are lacking uh, solemn uh, men men who are not serious-minded in many ways. He was grave yet pleasant. In other words, he wasn't miserable all the time. He was an open, conversable, and entertaining companion, a polite gentleman, and a devout Christian. He had a sweet, tender spirit, it was said. His messages were tender, solemn, pungent, and persuasive. A certain dignity of sentiment and style, a venerable presence, a commanding voice, an emphatical delivery. Concurred both to charm his audience and over all of them into silence and attention. 
He was a born orator. And it was said of Samuel Davies that he, like Whitfield, he could change the audience, not by being cute and funny, by preaching God's word with power and authority. Well, next we have his preaching. And, uh, and there you just have a picture of him. Uh, the preaching of the gospel. Oh, sorry. That's one more thing under his character. It says, He possessed naturally every qualification, both of body and mind, to make him that accomplished orator and fit him for the pulpit. His frame was tall, well-proportioned, erect, and comely. His voice clear, loud, distinct, melodious, and well-modulated. He knew how to pause for effect. He knew how to raise his voice at the right time. He knew how to slow down. He knew how to speak. And his natural genius was strong and masculine. See, babe, powdered wigs are strong and masculine, I'm telling you. His understanding clear, his memory retentive, his invention quick, his imagination sprightly and fluid, his thoughts sublime, and his language elegant, strong, and expressive. Again, now we go back. That was his personal character. Now his preaching and revival, and this is our last point for the day. He said this. What did he live? We lived, he said, the preaching of the gospel is the main end of my function and I think the principal object of my zeal. Ian Murray said that his preaching combined a solemnity, pathos, and animation with the most tender, fervent benevolence to souls. Listen to this coming from Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Davies says, because he loves him, that is Christ, he longs for the full enjoyment of him. Because Christ is precious to him, his interests are so too. And he longs to see his kingdom flourish. And all men fired with his love. Because he loves him, he loves his ordinances. Loves to hear because it is the word of Jesus. Loves to pray because it is maintaining intercourse with Jesus. Loves to sit at his table because it is memorial to Jesus. And loves his people because they Love Jesus. You see, why do we take the Lord's Supper? Because that's Jesus' supper. Why are we going to go later today and pray at fellowship groups? Because we get to gather together and have intercourse or talk to Jesus together. Why do we go to church? Because we love the people of God. We love each other in this room because we are Jesus' people. Christ is precious to him, so all these things become precious to him. And so that's why nobody wants to miss the Lord's Supper, because it's precious to Christ. And so you get what he's saying here. If what's precious to Christ isn't precious to you, Christ is not precious to you. And you need to evaluate. His preaching led to revival. I'll, I'll probably just touch on this at the very, very beginning next week because we're running out of time. But understand that under Davy's preaching, God sovereignly chose to work through that preaching to bring about awakenings throughout Virginia. Just as we saw in Massachusetts under Edwards, up through the colonies with Whitfield and other preachers, Virginia now, men and women are being converted in the commonwealth of Virginia. And this is making the Anglican church really mad, uh, as you can imagine. A couple more things, and then I close. I find, Davy says, to my sorrowful surprise, speaking of the ministers of Virginia, that the generality of them, as far as can be discovered by their common conduct and public ministrations, are stupidly serene and unconcerned, as though their hearers were crowding promiscuously to heaven. 
Now, see what he's saying here? The ministers, they don't see where their people are going. They just think they're on their way to heaven. Therefore, they preach in a totally different manner. And there were little or no dangers. No, the people are one breath away from eternity in hell. Remember, Davies lived on the borders of eternity. He always had eternity right there. He saw eternity. And if you see hell in your sights, if you see heaven in your sights, you live in a different way and you preach in a different way. But these ministers did not. And do not represent their miserable condition in all its horrors. Do not alarm them with solemn, pathetic, and affectionate warnings. And expostulate with them with all the authority, tenderness, and pungency of the ambassadors of Christ to a dying world. Why were these ministers not doing their duty? The people that sat under them were on their way to hell. They told them, if you just do this and do that, you're fine. You're in the church. You were baptized. Put your confidence in being baptized. And Davies is saying, no. Like all the new light ministers, you must be born again. You must be born again. I'm going to close with just a short portion of a sermon. And this is, again, I think I mentioned this last week. If you go to Hanover County on the Revolution Trail, uh, you will see this structure. It's a go kind of a ghostly structure. What they did is they found the very foundation of the church that Davies preached in in Hanover County uh, several years ago. It was burnt down by Union troops as they came into Virginia, the Confederates, and it became a bat right in the middle of a battlefield. It got burnt down. I mentioned last week there's drawings of what the inside of it looks like. It's really cool. Um, but what I want you to do is just imagine Davy's voice coming out of, of the church. All right? This is just some of his preaching, uh, and I will close like th with this. But I also want you to think about this. There's a teenager sitting in this church listening to Davy's preach. He's watching every motion. He's learning how to speak from Samuel Davies. He's seeing the importance of religious liberty. And he begins to imitate Davies in a lot of ways. He begins to learn how to weave scripture into his speeches. And next week, we're going to talk about that young man who was Patrick Henry, right, who will be one of the greatest uh, if, if for, as far as religious liberty. We don't understand that Samuel Davies set the stage not only for revival, but for religious liberty. And we're going to talk about that. But I want you to just listen to what, how Davies preached. Unfortunately, I don't have the oratorical skills that he did. Um, but I'm just, it's the content. So, are you ready? Oh, if the souls that you once knew, while clothed in flesh, should take my place, would not this be their united voice? Prepare, prepare for eternity, you frail, short-lived mortals. You close neighbors of death and eternity. You close neighbors of death and eternity. You borderers upon heaven and hell. Make ready, loosen your hearts from earth and all that it contains. Weigh, anchor, and prepare to launch away into the boundless oceans of eternity, which is now within your sight and roars within your hearing. The stream of time, with all the trifles that float on it, and all the eager pursuers of these bubbles, is in motion, in swift, incessant motion to empty itself, and all that sail upon it, into the shoreless ocean of eternity, where all will be absorbed and lost forever. This I say, brethren, with great confidence, the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not. 
Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy something as if they were not, if it was not theirs to keep. Those who would use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form, in all its schemes of affairs, in all its vain parade, all the futile farce of life is passing away. And way let it pass, if we may at last obtain a better country. That is a heavenly one, which may God grant for Jesus' sake. Amen. And one last paragraph here. The time is hastening when you will not think so lightly of Christ and salvation. Oh, sirs, when God shall commission death to tear your guilty souls out of your bodies, when devils shall drag you away to the place of torment, when you find yourselves condemned to everlasting fire by that Savior whom you now neglect, what would you then give for a Savior? See what he's doing? He's, put, he's able to put you in eternity, future, but draw that to the present. In other words, the reality of you standing before Christ is here. It's not there. It's here. When divine justice brings its heavy charges against you and you have nothing to answer, how will you then cry, Oh, if I had sincerely received Jesus for my Savior, He would have answered all. When you see that the world has deserted you, that your companions in sin have deceived both themselves and you, and all your merry days are over forever, would you not then give 10,000 worlds for Christ? So Davies preached with eternity stamped on his eyes. But he didn't neglect this world. Next week, we're going to talk about his preaching to the troops and his patriotism and the fact that cowards don't neglect their responsibility to their country. And he's going to tell them, you need to get your soul right before God because tomorrow you might die. And don't be a coward and neglect what you're supposed to do. Get right with Christ now. And, uh, and, and Patrick Henry is going to hear these messages and it's going to inflame a passion not only at the end of his life for Christ, but also for his country. All right. Any questions? Just a comment. Yeah. Uh, it's no small feat for uh, Samuel Davies to preach there because you've alluded to it that Virginia I mean, was close to a theocracy. England in charge, the taxes paid the Anglican pastor. Yes, they did. Yeah. And it was outlawed to preach others in Anglican uh, doctrine. That's right. So he was going to a hostile, non-permissive environment. Yeah. And we're going to take up next week, we'll talk about one of Henry's first cases was the Parsons cause. And uh, we'll see how he defended uh, those that were being forced to pay taxes to the ministers. Yeah. No, very good. No, they, they, I didn't get into how much he really, it was very hard. You had no freedom in Virginia. One of the things I'm getting at is don't think that we all had freedom over here. That had to be one over here. Uh, religious freedom. So that's very important. All right. Anything else? So he never had any I'm sorry, yes. He did marry again uh, to a Jane Holt. I call her Hanover Jane. Better than Hanoi Jane, I just thought, well. <laughs> but, uh, um, and uh, uh, what was I going to say? I don't, yes. Five, so when he died, he had his wife and five children. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I, I'll try to wrap up his life at the very beginning. Uh, because his funeral, again, it really was impactful in our country. Uh, again, we don't know that, but that's why we want to talk about him, because uh, people were really distressed when he passed away, because he passed away at 37, and here all the fruit that was coming out of his ministry was really huge. Remember, remember,
the first four presidents of Princeton die within the first very short time. Jonathan Dickinson, Aaron Burr Sr., Jonathan Edwards, and Samuel Davies. And three of them preach out of the text, this year thou shalt die in, on New Year's. And three of them died, uh, the three of them that preached on it died uh, that year. So, you know. Yeah, the wear, wearing of his body. I, they said he would stay up all night with people. I mean, he just really, through study, a lot of these guys burned themselves out through study, and then they lived a hard life. I mean, it just was very hard. Nobody lived long back then. And so once you get tuberculosis, it's a, de- it's a, it's a death sentence at some point. Um, so, yeah, good question. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, men uh, and women godly men and women who have set examples for us. We're thankful that uh, you preach, you work through the preaching of your word. Lord, we firmly believe that while things seem dark and we know not the future and we know not what's going to happen, we also know that other generations have seen dark times as well. And rather than fret and, and be fearful, they got on their knees and prayed, knowing that you, just your word, Your word is more powerful than all the kingdoms of this world. We're reminded of your servant, Martin Luther, who said he just sat and let the word do its work. And I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would not give up on our time, the time we live. Write it off. We'd not be lazy. Take the lazy way out and just wait for your coming. But rather, I pray that we would get on our knees. And whether or not you sovereignly bring revival or not, that that would be the heart of our country and for the communities that we live in. As John Knox said, give me Scotland or I die. I pray that we would say that about America. Give us America or we die. Lord, we love this country, but we also know that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. You're sovereign over all the nations. And regardless of what happens, I pray that we'd be faithful. If we never see another revival or an awakening, I pray that we'd be faithful to live in a manner as if there was one. Pray that we would now leave from here today because Christ is precious to us. I pray that this day would be precious to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.